Welcome to Beyond the Ring. Our focus is on connecting young professionals with the energy sector. Join the youth government energy team. Shane Wilson, Nisha Ramdas, Graham Jones. This season, we will be engaging in conversations with leaders from various companies within the energy value chain. Welcome to Beyond the Rig episode 12. And on this episode, we will be having a conversation with Christopher Narine Thomas, energy analyst. Welcome, Chris. It'd be great if you could give us a little insight in terms of your journey within the sector, the energy sector, um, so our listeners could get an idea of, um, of Christopher Narine Thomas' journey in the energy sector. I think probably the, the best place to start is from the very, 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 very beginning. Um, so uh, how did I get into the energy sector? Well, I am in uh, Port of Spain, so I'm not from South. I'm actually a town boy through and through. You know, the old joke of uh, we'd already passed the lighthouse and all of that. That was definitely me growing up. And in Port of Spain, I guess when you're, you know, going to school, you don't really hear quite a bit about the energy sector, you know, in your classes and stuff like that. Of course, I would have studied sciences. And, you know, you might touch on it in chemistry where, you know, you're looking at refining operations as, you know, part of a lab or something. But, you know, you don't really get any sort of kind of deep insight as, you know, as I've heard from my friends from South, you know, working in the oil and gas industry, um, teachers who are familiar with it, you know, you get examples in school about it. So while I was at Trinity College uh, in sixth form, always remember, right, your friends in a high school and stuff like that. He said to me that he wanted to be a geologist. And I said, why? And he said, because geologists are the people that look for oil and they make a lot of money. So <laughs> it was then I started asking myself, oh, I don't know anything, anything at all about the energy industry or the I'm living in Trinidad. And so, you know, we spoke to our geography teacher about it. Um, Miss Richards, and I believe her son at the time was working in the energy sector, and she had organized to take a field trip uh, down to BP's offices to go into what they call the hive for us to look at some of uh, the operations that were taking place at, um, from the BP side. And then, you know, we had a chance to talk to some of uh, one of their head geologists there at the time. I don't remember his name. But he um, gave us an overview, you know, told us, uh, you know, about what his salary looked like and all those things. And, you know, I got very excited at that, uh, that point in time, and I said, yes, this is definitely what I want to do. So I um, went to university in the States, went to Florida International University where I studied geoscience. And then when I was finished with that, I came back home and I worked for the Ministry of Energy. And at the time, I was hoping to come back home and go straight into the private sector and work as a geologist in the private sector. And um, I was very disappointed that I had to come back home to work for the Ministry of Energy. But little did I know that that was probably the best starting point for my career that there ever could have been. Because while I was at the ministry, I got the chance under the OJT program to do a lot of different things. So I worked with the Carbon Reduction Strategy Task Force, um, I got the chance to work with the renewable energy team. 
I worked with resource management, um, you know, on a whole bunch of different projects. And so I was at the ministry for about two years. And whilst I was on the Carbon Reduction Strategy Task Force, uh, I realized that I had a bit of a gap. And the gap was I didn't understand how things in Point Lisas worked. And to me, it felt almost like, okay, so we bring these hydrocarbons to the surface and then what happens, right? And, you know, for my first year, uh, you know, I was all about, you know, resource in the resource management division, you know, looking at the subsurface, all those things. And then in my second year, I spent a lot of time because I was primarily with the renewable energy team and the carbon reduction strategy task force. And so I, I realized that there's there's this gap that I have in that I I feel like I can't see the link to sectors, the electricity sector and the petrochemical sector. But I had a strong feeling that point somehow. So you know, I applied to uh, a couple different universities around the United States. And uh, the one that I chose to go to was uh, this Ivy League institution called uh, Cornell University. And there they had a program called uh, uh, a Master's in Chemical Engineering, um, where, you know, the speciality and the focus was energy economics and energy engineering. And so, you know, it was the former head of uh, MIT's energy program. He was the head of MIT's program for 30 years, but he was originally a Cornell graduate. And, uh, you know, Cornell paid a lot of money to get him to come back to the university to essentially uh, be the head of that uh, course. And so he came back and he was like, you know, primary, um, I guess, advisor in the renewable energy and um, energy efficiency space. And then we had a couple of other advisors from industry. So guys who worked for Caltech, uh, Caltech, Caltex, uh, it's an older refining company, and guys who worked you know, for ExxonMobil and Chevron all over the world and things like that. And so the focus of the program was essentially you have to design and build these plants, but then you also have to negotiate all of the gas contracts and all of the different contracts that go behind operating them. So it's a very holistic program. So it's sort of like a technical MBA if I had to describe it as anything. So it's very, very hardcore engineering. And then also um, you have to take classes in the MBA school, you know, might have to take like, you know, some contracting classes, some law classes, things like that. Um, after that, I had a choice, which was to either stay in New York uh, or come back to Trinidad. And the decision that I made at that time was that I was going to forego, you know, a decent paying job in uh, New York City to come back to Trinidad because Trinidad and Tobago is one of the few places in the world where you can essentially see everything in one place. So you have a petrochemical industry, a refining industry, uh, LNG plant, power generation. We have everything in Trinidad in just one small um, 5,000 square kilometer radius. So it's, it's definitely, you know, something that I had to think long and hard about because, you know, the natural inclination for people is, oh, well, you know, I'll stay, uh, stay in this developed country and, you know, figure it all out from there and then come back home. I decided the only way for me to really understand how things worked at home was to come home. And I, and I think that that came from my uh, first stint working in the Ministry of Energy. And um, it was a tough decision, but I came home and uh, I got a chance to start working with uh, the energy chamber. So what, what, what happened was that um, when I came back to Trinidad, I got an opportunity. Dax gave me an opportunity. He didn't have a spot you know, in the, in the 
chamber at the time. And, you know, he found this one, there was this one project that, you know, the board was sort of looking at, uh, which was this uh, Petrotrain CDM project. And he said, well, you know, there was one line in my resume from the Ministry of Energy where I worked on the Carbon Reduction Strategy Task Force. And that's how I got hired, because of that one line. And because of that one thing that I did, I got that chance at the chamber after returning home. And, you know, from there and doing good work in that area, I got the, you know, the, they asked me if I wanted to chair the Energy Efficiency and Alternative Energy Committee for the chamber, which for me at the time was, you know, so kind of a daunting task, like a like big deal, because I was still in my mid-20s at the time. And I'm like, you want me to be the chairman of a committee of like these people who are managers and all of this? I'm, I'm just like a regular, I'm a, I'm a challenger at BP. And, you know, Dax believed in me. He said, you know, no, I think you could do it. And um, so, you know, it was, a, it was a great opportunity and it challenged me a lot. And um, I think from that, that's why, I, that's why I said that, you know, during the day, I would, I, I, you know, I'd do my day job at BP. But uh, at night, you know, I'd be sitting down there trying to think of ways um, to sort of engender more, energy efficient culture in Trinidad and Tobago, you know, looking at the data, doing the calculations, writing uh, uh, essays and papers, articles in the newspapers, all of those different things to sort of raise awareness. Chris, thanks so much for letting our listeners uh, hear about your journey. I mean, um, given what you describe, you know, from, from Port of Spain to the, the, the university in Florida and then actually working at the Ministry of Energy and, you know, going and, and study a master's at Cornwell University. And then, you know, returning back to Trinidad, uh, working for the, with the Energy Chamber and spearheading their committee and also BP at the same time. So I think, um, you know, it, it's a lot that was going on, you know. And, you know, just touch, wanting to touch on it, you know, uh, can you give us like a, a overview of your time at the Chamber? Because... Uh, I know, like, um, definitely from my perspective uh, as a young professional, you know, when you saw articles come up from the chamber, it was from you, um, especially around discussions looking at renewable energy and energy efficiency. And I know you were um, very critical uh, trying to advocate and push that agenda for evolving our hydrocarbon economy to also include renewables and energy efficiency. So, you know, like, there are a lot of young professionals out there who are interested in that field and probably you could give them some some overview of lessons you learned to trying to advocate and bring change to a, a legacy structure, you know? A very, very good question. What are some of the lessons that I learned? Lesson number one, you have to be very brave. And there are times when I didn't feel like how can I put it? You're always going to have imposter syndrome when you're young, right? So you have a good idea. Well, some people don't have it, but most people do, right? You, you, you have a good idea. You think that, you know, you, you've, done, you've done some due diligence on it. You think it has a chance and you want people to hear what you have to say. Um, and it tends to be something that can be frustrating in Trinidad because, you know, we, we tend to have a culture that's very different to the United States, whereby, you know, the United States will give a lot of... Uh, a lot of presence and um, put a lot of equity into young people, but uh, we sort of have, you know, a culture that is uh, one there. We we have a lot of preference and reference for age and you know experience and all of those different things. So you might find that um, 
ageism in the US would refer to, you know, people who are older, but ageism in Trinidad would refer to people who are a bit younger, right? And it's just a cultural thing. Like in Japan, it's the same way, Korea, it's the same way. It just depends on where you're from and how your culture is, is built, right? So the reason why I say you have to be brave is because you are going to be giving your position on something to people who you know are more knowledgeable than you are at this point in time in your career because you're young you don't know everything but the fact that you don't know everything is what is going to be i guess to me you know you saving grace in that i had a lot i got a lot of feedback from people after i would read write those articles and a lot of it was good feedback and the feedback that was critical was always sent to me in a very constructive way. So even sometimes people like industry people would give me a call and they would say, hey, you know, I saw what you're right and you're on the right track, but, um, you know, uh, you missed this. So this is something you might want to consider. So I'll be looking out for the next one, you know. And so I'd go research that, look into those things and keep writing. And there were times where there were presentations I didn't want to make because I was afraid. Right. I didn't think I was like, hey, if I go up there, if I'm seeing something that's wrong, you know, that might be the end. Um, you know, they, they, you won't hear anything from me again. But uh, my supervisor at the time was a guy called uh, Showin Long. And Showin, Showin and Dax are the kind of guys, they would be like, no, 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 you don't worry, man. You, you could do it. Right. Uh, we, we, we believe that you'll be all right. And if you're wrong, then they'll tell you you're wrong. And, you know, the sun will rise tomorrow and you'll be OK. You know, so. Um, I remember showing had encouraged me to present at the, uh, the one of the first uh, clean energy conferences there when I presented on the subsidy. And I was very, very nervous, but, um, you know, it made news that night and, uh, you know, I got a lot of positive feedback from it. And I probably would not have done that presentation if Shuin didn't encourage me. And so I think the one of the main messages from me on this as well is one, you have to be brave, but two, um, it's always good to have someone who is more knowledgeable than you are that you can run things by, you know, get a view of uh, what you're about to say. And, you know, if things, you know, if you are challenged, right, what are the things you may be challenged on? You know, it's not always, it's not always um, advisable to go it completely alone. You're going to need allies and you're going to need people that can, uh, that can assist. And that's why, because I had that anytime anyone reaches out to me, I always make the time, especially young people. I always, always, always make the time. So I've helped a number of different uh, university students, you know, with their thesis and all sorts of different things. I mean, if you call me, if you reach out to me, I will make the time because somebody made the time for me. And that's that's something that's not lost on me at all. Thanks so much, Chris. Um, you know, and, and those are two very powerful lessons, you know, because, you know, I'll, our culture is, is one where I think you're criticized if you feel at something, you know, like there's no level of redemption to bounce back, you know, and, and, and look at it as a lesson more than a failure. And I think that's scary. a real good message. Oh, it's, it's very scary, you know. I mean, I'll, uh, I'll tell you something. When I was at the ministry, right, I had written a line for, I think it was a speech I was writing for the minister at the time. And I wrote that Trinidad and Tobago is the second highest emitter of CO2 per capita, CO2 emissions per capita in the world. Always remember this story, uh, Shane, um, because my boss came back to me and he said, yeah, you need to take that out. And I was like, why? Right? It's true. And he said, 
you know, he'll tell me a story. And the story was about when he was young. And he said, you know, he remembers there was some issue with Wasa at the time. And someone had wrote something that the minister got up at the time. This is like maybe back in the 80s or the 70s or something like that. Somebody got up at the time and said something. And the opposition, you know, just destroyed the minister on this one statement. Say, what is the minister doing about this? What, what, what is the government doing about this? Why hasn't there been, been any change or anything like that? And so the lesson he learned at that time was, you know, you have to be very careful about what you write because the minister at that time came back to the person's desk and said to them, you know, listen, this is what was this is what was written for me. This is what you had me say. Now somebody needs to back this up. And if that's not if this if this isn't going to happen, then there are going to be repercussions. But this is what the fear always is for us, whether real or imagined. That you know someone is going to come down from the ether and essentially point a finger at us and say this is the end for you. There is going to be no more because you made you gave your point of view, and we don't agree with what your point of view is. And I and I think that that is something that you know we we are very fearful of in Trinidad as young people. And it's not just about work, you know. Uh, when I was going to school in the states, I had to learn how to ask a question. Because when I was in high school, I remember when I would ask a question, you know, your teacher would say something to you like, uh, you know, we taught that last week. Why are you asking this? This means you didn't, this means you didn't do the homework or this means you didn't study your laughing because you know it's true. Right? Yeah, yeah. It means you didn't do something. And so as a result, I'm not doing this. I'm not answering that question. So now you become afraid of asking questions. So it's a culture that you, that you sort of learn in Trinidad. It's, you get afraid of asking questions. And I used to be amazed by how some of these students in the States, they would, they would not be afraid to ask any question. They would challenge the professor, challenge the teachers all the time. And that was something that I had to, I had to learn because it was, not, it was not in me culturally. And it might be something from my generation. I don't know, because I heard you laughing. So I know it's true. And maybe it's changed now. But <laughs> at that time, and you know very well what I'm talking about. Yes, right? indeed. And, and, you know, and the, and the culture in government may have changed as well. Right. But for my boss at the time, that's what he grew up understanding. So so these sort of things is these are the sort of things that make us fearful. Right. And it's because as young people, we tend to be fearful. We don't usually go after opportunities. And I think that is um, and, and these are opportunities to put ourselves out there, not opportunities to you know, make money or opportunities to shine or whatever. I'm saying opportunities where in order to capitalize on the opportunity, you have to put your own personal, well, you have to put your own person at risk. I'm not talking about physical risk, but let's say reputational risk. You know, you have to go out there and you might be embarrassed if you say something that's that's wrong, but you might be right, you know? And, or somebody might hear what you have to say and say, hey, you're not 100% right, but let me guide you on what you're missing, you know? Uh, but I think that that fear of being criticized that fear of being told not to ask questions, uh, that fear that's instilled in us sometimes keeps us back a lot. And, you know, the only way that I was able to get out of that, like I said, you know, the experiences that I had, but also, you know, like people being there to sort of push me, you know, to say, take the chance and do it, you know? And yeah. That, I think that uh, that's the encouragement that I want to give to people, take the chance and do it. Yeah, definitely. You know, I um I had a similar experience like you um as well from my time uh working in my day job at NGC, you know. Um I went away to study um at Robin Gordon University, a course called energy management. So and around that time, you know, there were there was a lot of changes that occurred at NGC. 
And I remember the um, current president, Mr. Lukwan, asking me to present at the Renewables and Energy Efficiency Conference. And I was, you know, the first time actually doing that level of public speaking in Trinidad. And again, you have to have people who are willing to take a chance on you. And, you know, I want to kind of touch on lesson two, which is, um, which is something that I basically feel is something that a lot of young professionals need, which is, you know, you, you see, you need somebody around to kind of advise you and, and more or less kind of critique you will to help you understand where you can improve and you know that that's more along the lines of mentorship so chris uh, you know it, it'd be real great if you could give our listeners probably about you know three tips that they could use for trying to select a mentor you know because i think mentorship is something that isn't really encouraged but however you know after doing um, a couple of interviews on our podcast i realized that is a common trait in in all um leaders you know they at at one yeah. point there, there was somebody kind of guiding them and assisting them in developing their career i'll tell i'll tell you something that you know i had the i guess i got the luck of the draw when it comes to the energy sector and getting the opportunity you know and that's given me the opportunity to to start um after i left the ministry to work at the at the chamber um during that time, I, you know, got the chance to meet a lot of different people, you know, mentored, uh, got advice from them, you know, senior executives in the energy sector and all of those things, right? So if I'm giving advice to young people, it, 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 I, I want to be very clear in that for me, what was particularly unique was that I had that opportunity. Now, not everyone is going to get that opportunity. So I don't want people to, to come to, to listen to the podcast and think it's something that is going to be easy. I'm going to say that I got a bit lucky. But where, the, but what luck is, and I've heard this, um, I've heard uh, sort of a saying about what luck is. Luck is when uh, preparation meets opportunity, right? Now, when I was at university in uh, Florida, they used to have this thing that they would say that they would beat it into our head over and over and over. And, you know, you know, you're young and you, you don't really listen to it, but, you know, some things kind of stick with you and you, you do them because, you know, eh, let me try this out, you know. What they said is to get involved. Get involved with something on campus. It didn't matter what it was. Just get involved in some student government, um, the NRA, be involved in some community program that the school is doing, sports, whatever it is, get involved in something. When I came back home, I took that lesson with me, right? And so I got involved in things when I was at the Ministry of Energy that I didn't have to. I could have just left work, gone home at four o'clock. But I was like, hey, you know, you guys are working on this. This seems interesting. Can I lend a hand? I have some extra time. Can I participate in this? So from there, you meet a lot of people by doing work, right? And then same thing, you know, when I got to the chamber, you know, I would do a lot of things, volunteer for a lot of things, participate in things. So when people join or when, when, when people see things like, uh, you know, they will hear things like uh, the energy chamber is a good place to network. I never really understood what people meant by that. And to this day, I still don't. I still don't. I, I, I guess I don't have that networking skill. Um, the way I would do it is I would do it by getting deeply involved in something. So it's like, join this organization i asked well what what work do you guys have to do that you haven't been able to do because you know you're busy you don't have time all right i'll try to do that 
And from there, you start building goodwill and it might be something as small as making phone calls or moving tables and chairs, or it might be something like, you know, an analysis that was sitting down that wasn't being done. But, you know, through these things, people start noticing you. They start, you know, um, recognizing that they can rely on you. And when people realize that they can rely on you, then you would find that, you know, you get more and more opportunities to do different things. And from there, just by virtue of the work that you're doing, you meet people. So a lot of times people sort of think, think of this thing as, I'm going to join this organization so that I can meet people. The advice that I would give is you, you should join the organization so that you can do some, some, some good quality work. And in doing that good quality work, you will inevitably meet people. And because of your work ethic and you know, the, the, the interest that you show in different topics and things like that, the, the type of people that you're looking for will tend to gravitate to you, right? They will tend to say, oh, you know, this, this, this person is a good person, you know, maybe this is something I can, they, they, they have a question, right? I want to take the time to answer their question because I see that they work very hard. I see that they're really interested. I see that they really want to understand what's going on. So I'll take the time to explain it to them. And from the different people that you meet, you know, you'll be able to identify, well, who are the people that give you the best kinds of advice that you are looking for? Because, you know, you might have several mentors. You might not only have one. I myself, I have several, right? Um, and different, I go to different mentors for different things, you know? So if it's a particular technical topic, there's one person, there's a particular person I go to. If it's something in the electricity sector, there's somebody that I go to. If it's something in LNG, there's somebody that I go to, petrochemicals, so on, so on, so on, you know? So there are, the, the main message, I guess, from me is that it's not, it's networking isn't what, what people think it is, right? People think it's like, you know, I just stand in a room sipping on this cocktail and shake hands and everybody knows me, right? It's like, yeah, people can know you, but what, why do they know you? What are you known for, <laughs> right? And the, the way that you get known, what you want to be is known for something and you want to be known for the right thing. And the only way that you can get known in that way is to get involved. And, and I'm not just talking about showing up, but you, just, you have to show up all the time, but you also have to do. And once you're showing up and you're doing, then you will see, you will see opportunities arise. So that's why I say, you know, there's a little bit of luck, right? But luck is also when preparation meets opportunity because you're prepared, you've prepared sufficiently. And so when the opportunity comes, you can grab it, you know? So that's what I would say uh, when it comes to, to mentorship and, you know, finding the right mentor. It's, it's a little bit of, you, there's some work that you have to put in as well um, so that the right mentor can sometimes find you. You know, otherwise, then you're just kind of going on blind luck. And I prefer to go on the preparation meets opportunity kind of luck, you know. Chris, thanks for the great advice. Um, I know our listeners would definitely appreciate it. And, you know, um, like I say, you know, if you don't have a mentor, you are a young professional, you should actively be looking at somebody who you believe can help you as a young professional develop to become a, a better um, professional overall, you know? It is a it is a, a trademark secret, I, I believe, or part of the DNA of, of developing yourself as a potential leader um, for whatever you would like to get into, whether it be in energy or um, any other field. So 
Um, thanks, man. You know, a lot of people, as as you mentioned, you know, you present you presented at the energy conference. You know, that was actually their last time you presented, and you know, you you, you brought up the whole concept of looking at hydrogen for feeding our downstream sector. You know, you, you created a, a link that was so simple and always in front of us, but we, you know, we, we never really paid much attention to it. And, you know, it's it really to tie it on in terms of, you know, currently right now, our production um, in Trinidad is not where it used to be. And, you know, instead of looking at it as probably a gas uh, shortfall, is really a hydrogen shortfall because you know ammonia methanol plants use hydrogen as a, a feedstock and currently right now the system is set up is we would take natural gas and, and try to extract the hydrogen and you know it, it, it was one of those concepts like i just mentioned always in front and it was like a kind of aha moment and I, I like if you could probably give our listeners a kind of playbook that, that, that you would typically use when trying to look at a problem and finding a, a solution. You know, I think it's something that will help us because I know we, we are in an age of where we're looking at actually the energy transition, uh, reducing our emissions, but also looking to create new industries and and, and new new facilities, you know, and, and definitely one of the areas is actually looking at your problem like any entrepreneur would and try and find a solution. And I, I, I wish that, uh, you know, so there are a couple, there are a couple different things that uh, caused me to come to that conclusion, right? And to frame it in the way that I did. Uh, hmm, where to start? Probably easier to start at the beginning as always. Um, I guess when I was doing my masters, one of the things that they sort of instilled uh, was um, they, they always tested you on what you understood and not what you know. So like, you know, you go into the exam and uh, let's say you're doing fluid dynamics and all your questions are in a circular pipe. You go into the exam and all the questions in the exam are in a square pipe. If you know what you're doing, you'll be able to solve it. As a matter of fact, it might actually be easier to do it in a square pipe than in a circular one. That's beside the point, right? Point is, is that that's what they would do. They would throw these curveballs. So you always had to understand what you were doing. That was the, that was critical message. So remember when I said I wanted to go back to school to get a better understanding of the petrochemical sector. At that time, in doing that master's in chemical engineering, which was quite difficult because you know I had to do all the undergrad and grad classes at the same time, there was one question that was always niggling at the back of my mind, right? Which was, what is the industrial application of renewable energy? I can't figure out what it is. There just doesn't seem to be one. Okay, so we make electricity, we light our homes. Is that it? Is that all we use it for? It's electricity. I mean, like, there are so many industrial processes that require energy, you know, but we require components. Yeah, it's components that, you know, we're using in these processes. You know, we're stripping out uh, hydrogen, we're stripping out carbon dioxide, we're stripping out nitrogen from the air. There are different things that we're doing. So, the question that always, you know, I, I, I always wrestle with that. And it was always something that I know, tell, uh, um, tell like, you know, some of my colleagues, uh, some of the folks that I worked on the chamber committee with, you know, we'd sit down and have discussions about it. And I know you had a Dr. Dale Ramlakan on the, on the podcast earlier. And he and I, we would sit down and, you know, we would really try to figure out, well, 
man, what could it be? You know, what would be the industrial application of renewables? And Advision had come to Trinidad and they had, you know, they made a presentation on hydrogen, right? And they, they sort of, by the way mentioned, they said, yeah, and you know, in Trinidad, you know, you have all these petrochemical plants, so it would be, you know, probably a good opportunity to explore hydrogen in Trinidad. And that's when it hit me. I, I realized that what these folks at that busy and had mentioned, and it was a, it was a one line, it was a very critical message in the uh, guy's presentation. But what what it what it touched on for me was that he because he's not from Trinidad, he didn't understand the Trinidad context and the narrative and all of the different situations that we were encountering with gas supply shortfall and all those things, right? But the main message to me was that what was clear is that 40% of our industry, right, which is where our gas consumption goes for petrochemical consumption, isn't about gas. It's about hydrogen. So what we have is not a downstream gas industry. We have a downstream hydrogen industry. We just get the hydrogen from gas, but that's not the only place you can get hydrogen from. You can get hydrogen from electrolysis of water. And so what that means is that now you have an industrial application for renewable energy. So if before we were having renewable energy in the context of the renewable energy conversation in Trinidad in the context of, of we can reduce our gas consumption to, to electricity, now we're actually having one the way we're, where we're talking about we can have product differentiation. And to me, that's where the real prize is. Because what you're now seeing is that when you look at the petrochemical industry in Trinidad, you would see of all the places that we have competition, right? You have the Ukraine, you have the United States, you have uh, Russia, you have all of these places, China, all of these places that are now producing more and more petrochemicals, especially, especially in the US because of the shale gas revolution. What makes us more competitive than them? We've had the, comp the commodity type pricing model that's allowed us to stay afloat for a number of years after we you know, locally designed that in the 90s. Even some plants in the States tried doing it as well. But the one thing that stood out to me was that these guys have really, really, really low gas costs. So we're going to struggle to compete with them. The advantage that we have currently is that all of our plants are fully depreciated. So we don't have to take on you know, that, that CapEx expense. However, there will come a time where our competitiveness will slowly erode. So what do we do to set ourselves apart? Well, if you can make a greener product and you can sell the same petrochemicals, but it's a greener product, then from an industry perspective in Trinidad, you now have first move advantage because now you can say, listen, I am not just making petrochemicals, I'm making green petrochemicals. And so my business model is now one of product differentiation. I'm differentiating my product away from all of the others so hence I should be able to attract a premium. And with time, as the costs of these things go down, I will again have first mover advantage because all of my kit will be fully depreciated. I'll be running on variable costs. And by the time the rest of the world catches up, I'll be one of the lowest cost producers, you know? And you kind of see that with, uh, you know, the Atlantic LNG facility. When we, when we did it, a lot of people, you know, were saying, well, you know, this is the resurgence of LNG in the Western hemisphere. And is this a good idea for a little island to be participating in something that is this massive on a global scale? But the reality of the situation is to this day, and I just saw a chart the other day, when you look at you know, uh, dollars per ton 
in terms of you know the cost of uh, the cost of um, the construction of LNG plants around the world. Atlantic one, two, three, and four, all the way to the end of the cost curve on the cheapest side. Even today, still one of the cheapest in the world, and that's because you know we found ways to cut the cost, make it very, very, very uh, make cost very low. And because we had we had first move advantage, we still have some level of competitiveness. So this is where I sort of see you know hydrogen and Trinidad in that it's the opportunity to carry us right into the next phase of the uh, energy and into the next phase of the energy sector development in Trinidad. And that's why I I, I had to sort of put it in that way in that. If we think about it like it's a gas industry, then we're not actually tackling what the problem is. The shortfall is not a gas shortfall. The shortfall is a hydrogen shortfall. That's where the shortfall is. So find ways to fix the problem. You know, identify the problem. It's like what those consultants always say. Identify the problem first. You know, and the problem is we have a hydrogen shortfall in the country. Yeah, Chris. Thanks. Thanks so much for giving us your process um, behind it. You know, as we look to wrap up. Um, I was wondering if you had any advice you would like to give young professionals looking to bring change, um, especially in the energy sector in Trinidad and Tobago. Bring change in the energy sector in Trinidad. I mean, um, that's that's tough, right? Um, advice to bring change. Well, what kind of change are you referring to? Positive change, I imagine. Right? Yeah, yeah, P- positive change, and and it could be all for your experience, you know, whether it's in policy or looking at actually going after ideas, you uh-huh. know, that will really um, you, develop probably uh, new industries. Yeah, I would say, I would say, be data driven. Be data driven. It's something in Trinidad that we tend to we, we we tend to guess a lot, you know. We tend to guess and we tend to go on feelings a lot, like, you know, something doesn't feel right. We don't always want to sit down and do the math. You know, when we go to our day job and we get an instruction from our boss to do it, we do it. But when it's in our free time, we kind of just, uh, you know, sitting around a table or we're sitting at the bar and we're just talking. Say, well, I feel this, I feel that, I feel the other. But we don't always go after, um, you know, go after things with facts and figures. Um, The advice that I would give is that you can't fight math. Right? And if your math is correct, it's just a fact. It just is what it is. People don't have to like what the math says, but the math will always tell you what the truth is. And so for me, I think that if you want to make positive change in Trinidad and Tobago, then whatever area of the energy sector that you're working in, that you want to bring you know, this information to, to light, you're going to have to do some, some sort of... A, quantification of what the problem is, what the solution is, you know, is it going to save us money? Is it going to save us energy? How much is it enough? Do we need more? What are the problems that it creates? And, you know, I I think that to do that well, you're going to have to step outside of your comfort zone as well. So if you are, and this is something that, um, that I, that I also noticed in, you know, sort of reaching across the different industries and sectors. People in the downstream have no idea. They, they think, they sometimes think they do, but they don't have a very, very detailed idea of how upstream works. Upstream folks don't always, don't, don't have a very good idea of how downstream works, right? 
the power sector doesn't have a very good idea of how the petrochemical sector works. Petrochemical sector doesn't have a good idea of how power works. And so we're all sort of sitting in our silos, being experts in our silos. But because we are an expert in our silo, we believe we are expert on the energy sector. That is not necessarily true. We are an expert in the area that we are an expert in. But the energy sector is a very, very, very large piece. And so once you start being data driven, you start seeing where you have gaps. And where you have those gaps, you have to make sure that you fill them with people who know about those different areas. So when I was on the when I was chairman of the chamber committee, right, it was my goal to have a represent someone representing each facet of the sector, and that's how we were able to come up with different solutions. That's how we were able to recognize what the what the issues were relative to what's going on between you know. Um, NGC and TNTech with the opportunity cost of gas, what are the options with respect to renewables, energy efficiency, all of these different things. Like learning about how the sector operates from the different experts who sit in the particular silos of that sector. So now what you have is a holistic view of the energy sector. And and and, and I and I, I can't stress enough that most times when you meet when you meet people, what you will find is that they are experts in their field. But the problem is that they also believe that they're experts in the entire sector, and that's not true. And that's something that we have to sort of start moving away from to embrace the expertise of others and recognizing that, yes, I know a lot about this. I don't know a lot about that. I need to get in touch with somebody who does so that I can get a better understanding. And, you know, you have challenges with confidentiality and all of that, but just general understandings of the, of the workings of the sector that's something that, you know, I, I would say is very, very important. That, cr that cross-pollination is very, very important. Yeah, the fundamentals, <laughs> as I like to, um, I, I love to describe it. So as we close off episode 12, I'd like to thank Chris for being a guest. On behalf of the team, I would like to thank everyone once again for listening and tuning in. Join us next week as we will be having episode 13, a bonus episode with Neil Beakey, co-founder of Operate Software, a tech startup looking to improve safety in the energy sector. Until next time, stay safe.